If you're a guest here today and this is your first time here, I want to preface my uh, talk this morning by telling you that this is a very different series than we've ever done uh, here at Northwest. You see the graphic up on the screen. It's called Sermon Hangups. We began to realize and recognize that uh, uh, there are a number of times when in the course of teaching, uh, I say something or even somebody else who's a guest that particular week says something and you go, I wish they'd talk about that just a little bit more because I didn't really understand that. And that's what this uh, brief series is all about. This is the third out of four. We'll finish it up uh, next week. But these are questions that have been submitted from our body, from people that are right here. In fact, just last Sunday, I got 12 questions. All right, so now you're starting to go, wow, this is going to be a long day. It's not, because I'm only going to do six of them today, all right? But if you still have a question, maybe something even that comes up as I'm talking today, or something that you've wondered about, maybe a particular issue that's going on even in our culture, and you say, I just don't understand, what does the Bible say about that? Uh, We'll talk about those things. We've only got one more week, and uh, trust me, the six questions that I have for uh, last week, you should be very thankful that I'm not doing them this week, otherwise... Uh, we'd get out of here uh, in the early hours of the afternoon. So I've decided just to narrow it down to, uh, to six questions today. But if you've got some, uh, take the connection card out. Right on the back of the connection card, there's a blank spot back there with several lines on it. You don't have to put your name, although given some of the questions, I think some of you owe me the privilege of having your name. All right, You know who you are. I think some of you are just uh, trying to stump the pastor. I think that's what you're trying to do. Um, but you don't have to put your name on there if it's a question that you've wondered about. Uh, we've had several of our students that have done that. Uh, please submit the question, and uh, I'll do my best to answer it. If the Bible doesn't give us a clear, concise answer, I'll tell you that, and I'll give you my opinion. I've got an opinion on just about everything. Those of you that know me know I'm fully capable of that. But I'll at least make sure that you know it, that it's my opinion and not necessarily something that I find directly uh, in Scripture. So our first uh, question for this morning is, is sarcasm a spiritual gift? Right? <laughs> Yeah, uh, according to Bill Zedites, uh, who premiered his Body Life uh, uh, repertoire this morning, and that'll be all you'll ever see, quite frankly. No, no, go on YouTube, go on YouTube, especially if you're our guest this morning, and just do a search of Bill Zedites on YouTube, all right? You'll see, this man has talents, all right? You didn't see it this morning, but he does have talent, okay? Uh, So no, uh, sarcasm is not a spiritual gift. It's not. So let's move on to the second question. The second question for today, and this was submitted by actually one of our elementary school kids. Why are the books of the Bible not in the order in which they happened? What a really great question, right? You ever read through the Bible or had somebody teach and then they're going like this and you're going, that's not how I typically tell a story. Imagine if you were to read a Uh, fiction or nonfiction, and it were just to go like this all over the place, you'd be very confused, right? And so that's a good question. Why are the books of the Bible not in the order in which they happen? The books of the Bible are primarily divided by types of literature. Uh, For example, you have Genesis uh, through Esther. They're primarily historical. Job through Song of Solomon are uh, poetry. Isaiah through Malachi are prophecy. And similarly, if we were to look in the New Testament, Matthew through Acts are historical, Romans through Jude are letters to churches or to individuals and have a lot of doctrine attached uh, to them. The book of Revelation is prophecy. And within the type of literature, the books of the Bible uh, are in chronological order. For example, Isaiah's prophecies occurred before Jeremiah's prophecies. 
but the Bible not being in chronological order can sometimes uh, confuse people, and it can make studying the Bible uh, difficult if you're not aware of that. And that's why a chronological Bible can come in handy. I don't know if you know this, but there are some of those Bibles that are out there. And what they simply do is they arrange the books of the Bible in chronological order so that you read it as a, a, a story. And uh, for some of you, that might, uh, that might be a great thing uh, for you to have, especially if, if you're a new Christ follower. It hasn't been very long. Maybe you didn't grow up in church, which is a number of you. Something like that may be very helpful uh, uh, to you. And um, next week, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to give you a half sheet of paper, which are normally our sermon notes that are in the bulletin. I'm going to give you a half sheet of paper, and I'm going to give you a number of resources in which you can look for some of these questions on your own. One of the things I'm also going to do is uh, give you a few examples of these chronological Bibles that you might be able to purchase if you're interested uh, in that. So really great question. Number two, why and how is the Catholic Bible different from the Bible we use at Northwest? That could be a volatile question. I recognize that some of you came from a Catholic uh, background. And uh, while I want to be sensitive to that, I also, if you've been here at Northwest any length of time, know that I want to be very truthful about Scripture as well. And I want to lead you to biblical principle. We have said over and over and over again at Northwest, and we'll say it over and over again in the future, that this is our source of authority and practice. This is, this, is, this, is, this is our guidebook, right? It's like the owner's manual for your car. Men don't read them. Women do every now and then. Every once in a while, I see my wife looking in the owner's manual, and I'm like, what are you doing? She's like trying to find out where that light, that light bulb that's out there. And I'm going, well, just figure it out, right, men? We don't, need a, we don't need a guidebook, right? We don't need the owner's manual. But that is not true of us as Christ followers. If you intend to live the life that God calls us to live, that we see in Scripture, you need a guidebook, and that's what this book is. Now, here's what's important for you to know as far as differences between the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible. The Protestant Bible is actually seven books shorter than the Bible used by Roman Catholics. Many of you know that. In addition to the 39 books that are in the Old Testament, the Catholic Old Testament also includes uh, seven other books. And those books are commonly referred to as the Apocrypha. Uh, But Protestants, it's important for you to know, didn't just take out those books. Uh, They used a different standard of what should be in the Bible. Now, we talked about this a little more in depth in the last couple of weeks, and so I'm not going to go back and rehearse uh, that again. Um, But I want to give you just a, a few new pieces of information that might be helpful to you. The Hebrew Bible actually has 29 books. In fact, the list or the canon, you've heard the canon of Scripture, and I got to thinking about this last week. This is where sometimes when you answer a question, it uh, brings up all new questions. And as soon as last week I said canon, something triggered in my head to say, if I'm a new Christ follower, if I'm not necessarily a student of the Word, if I'm new in my faith and I hear the term canon, you think, wow, now that's what I knew church to be about. Somebody that loads a canon and just shoots it at me, all right? That's not what that means. Canon uh, is a Greek word, and the meaning of that Greek word is measuring rod, okay? So when we refer to the canon of Scripture... Those are those books of the Bible Bible that have been measured. There's measurement that's been used uh, in order to determine uh, whether or not those should have been part of Scripture. And we talked about that a little bit more in depth last week. But the original canon of Scripture, the Hebrew Bible of 24 books, was affirmed at, at councils in A.D. 90 and in A.D. 118. And the Protestant Old Testament includes exactly the same information that's found in the Hebrew Old Testament 
uh, but it's organized into 39 books. So in the Hebrew Old Testament, you find 24 books. In our Protestant English Bible, you find 39 books. And uh, the difference is that um, some of those books are divided up into two. For example, the Hebrew Bible has one book of Samuel, whereas we have First and Second Samuel, while the Protestant Bible uh, sometimes divides some of those books and some of those letters, and that's how we end up with 39, but it's exactly the same information. Now, here are several reasons, and for some of you, I know you don't have sermon notes this morning, but maybe you've got a blank sheet of paper and you might want to write this down. There are several reasons why as Protestants, uh, as evangelicals, why we reject the Apocrypha. Let me give you those four reasons. Number one, the books never were included in the Hebrew canon. Now, they do appear in the Septuagint, and again, I know for some of you, I'm starting to fly high now, and it's going over your head, uh, but, but, but stay with me here for just a moment. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so some of those books of the Apocrypha uh, appear in the Septuagint, although scholars believe that it's very likely that they gradually found their way into later copies, but they weren't in the original uh, translation. Number two, various credible ancient sources that frequently allude to and quote from the Old Testament exclude apocryphal books from the canon. You've heard of the Jewish historian, many of you, you've heard of the Jewish historian uh, Josephus. He never refers, he excludes the apocryphal uh, books. And uh, several other uh, ancient uh, sources exclude uh, the apocrypha. In fact, not only do they exclude it, but they rejected the apocrypha. Number three, apocryphal books are never quoted in the New Testament. This is pretty significant, I think. If you look at the Old Testament and, and maybe you've come out of the Catholic Church and you're used to reading those books, those apocryphal books, they're never quoted in the New Testament, and that is very significant. And although they existed in the first century, uh, and, and likely by this time they were incorporated into the Septuagint, as I said earlier, they never were quoted explicitly or cited by Jesus or any of the apostles in the New Testament. I think that's incredibly significant especially when you find that no fewer than a thousand times in the New Testament is the Old Testament quoted. You would think at some point that an apocryphal book would have been quoted in the Old Testament if they would have been and should have been part of the original canon of Scripture. And then lastly, no apocryphal book actually claims to be inspired by God. In fact, uh, some uh, uh, either disclaim it or they reveal evidence of errancy. There are actually several uh, historical and geographical and chronological mistakes that can be found in apocryphal books, uh, errors that are not characteristic of the other 39 books that are in the Hebrew Old Testament or in our 39 books in our English New Testament. Now, here's what's important for you to remember. I know there are some of you uh, used to be Catholics that are sitting there saying, so is none of that information good? Should we just reject it all? Although the books of the Apocrypha uh, are not totally useless. In fact, they do provide uh, some insight into ancient literature and to life uh, during uh, the intertestamental uh, period. They do form no part of Scripture. So they can be useful in your study of history, but they are not to be taken as Scripture. Now, here's the interesting thing, that we do share the exact same New Testament. Have you ever noticed that? That while our Old Testament is different, the New Testament is exactly uh, the same thing. Now, one of the major differences, and we don't have time this morning to go too far down uh, this road, but one of the major differences between Catholicism and Protestantism is the issue, issue of the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. I think that's very, very, very important for you to recognize. Uh, 
Uh, we believe as evangelical Christians here at Northwest, and I've, I said it to you at the beginning of my answer to this question, that this is the sole source for everything that God wants us to know about him. It's, a, it's, it's the source of authority. And Protestants believe that the Bible alone is the sole source of authority. Uh, we view the standard by which all Christian behavior has to be measured. In fact, uh, the belief is commonly referred to as sola scriptura and is one of the five solas. Uh, sola meaning uh, the Latin word for alone, scripture alone. And that is so, so very important. And I wish we had time this morning to go into a little more depth on this uh, particular issue. And while there are many verses which establish the authority of Scripture, I think my favorite, and I quote it a lot, is 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, where it says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Important thing for you to understand, and this is why I I'm concerned for many of my Catholic friends, even those that name the name of Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. uh, I am very concerned for them because uh, most Roman Catholics, in fact, the tenets of the church would say that they believe that both the Bible and sacred Roman Catholic uh, doctrines, such as purgatory and praying to the saints and worship or veneration of Mary, Um, Even though they have little to no merit in God's word, uh, they use the Apocrypha and other extra literature and other um, uh, teachings from the church as a whole to defend those doctrines which are not found any place in Scripture. And so, essentially, the Catholic Church's uh, rejection of sola scriptura, Scripture alone, uh, has led to... uh, some of the the reasons why we are most concerned, again, for those that are part of the Catholic Church. Now, again, I know that that probably opens up a lot of things for some of you who came out of the the church, and that's why I say get your connection card out right in the back of the connection card, because although we've only got one more week left in this series, uh, I would certainly, especially if you put your name down there, I'd be happy to sit with you and talk with you uh, more about these things, because it's very important for you to, uh, to sort through that. All right, question number three. Here's a good one. Will we recognize each other in heaven? You ever thought about that one? Are you going to recognize each other in heaven? I'm hoping I look a lot different. I really do. Yeah, I'm sorry. so surprised I didn't get a lot of amens on that. That's, that's, that's good. Many people say that the first thing that they want to do when they get to heaven is they want to see those that have gone uh, before them. Many of you have heard me talk about my story. My dad went to be with Jesus in December of 2003. And, um, and I think about my dad often. And I think about when I get to heaven, you know, I know what the spiritual thing to say is, right? What are you going to do when you get to heaven? Well, I'm going to run up, I'm going to give Jesus a big hug. That's cool. That's good. That's, that's honorable. Or I'm going to go find David. Wow, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Or Daniel, the guy that spent the night in the lion's den. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? Or Peter, the guy, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth? Wouldn't I like to go up and just, you know, hug his neck? Wouldn't I really like to do that? But I think for many of us, we want to see those loved ones that have gone on before us. And so the question logically comes up, will we recognize people in heaven? Uh, Will we recognize people that have gone on before us? Um, I don't think that that's going to be our primary focus when we get to heaven. I think sometimes when we're here on earth and we think about heaven, we think about heaven in terms of our earthly desires, right? 
one of these other questions, you'll see that to be true. And so sometimes, because we're finite human beings, we can't think about heaven outside of this paradigm of what we know to be true in this world. And so we think that, man, when we get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to do is go, where's granddad? I haven't seen him in a long time. I know he was a Christ follower. He's here someplace. I want to see him. And so the question comes up, will we recognize him? I think our reunions with loved ones are, are going to be filled with uh, incredible things. And I think one of the things that we're going to talk about our loved ones with is the grace which we have received. I think that's going to be tops on the list of things. I don't think we're going to sit down and talk about how life was after dad or granddad went to be with Jesus. I don't think we're going to talk a lot about that. I think we are going to be so enthralled at that moment and understand in a fresh new way the grace that we've received because of Christ's death on the cross. And I think that's going to be a primary topic of conversation. Um, but what does the Bible say about whether we're going to be able to re- recognize people in the afterlife? Here's a, just a couple of things for you to uh, remember. King Saul recognized Samuel when the witch of Endor summoned Samuel from the realm of the dead. Um, if you get bored here in a few minutes, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 8 through 17, and you can read about that. Some of you guys are going, that's cool, read about a witch. She, she's right there, 2 Samuel chapter 28, verses 8 through 17. But King Saul did recognize uh, Samuel. When David's infant son died, we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week in the context of a different question related to do babies go to heaven if they die. We're going to talk about that next week. But David declared in 2 Samuel chapter 12, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David assumed that he would be able to recognize his son uh, in heaven, which is an incredible thing to think about, right? Since his son died as an infant, And we would assume that, uh, brings up another question, right? What age will we be in heaven? We talked about that in our series in in January. But David said he would recognize him. He assumed he'd be able to recognize his son in heaven, despite the fact that he died as a baby. In Luke chapter uh, 16, Abraham, Lazarus, and the rich man were all recognizable after death. I think that's significant. And at the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were recognizable in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, In these examples, uh, we'd have to say that the Bible seems to give us some indication uh, that we are going to bear some of the same physical traits that we have now. Now, as I've thought about that this week, I've thought, I hope that, that there's some way in which God says, okay, I want people to recognize you. So what are those characteristics which you want to keep? What are those things that you want me to do away with? Don't you hope that? I mean, you know, for some of you, maybe you're going to go, my nose. I mean, I've always hated my nose. So God, you know, my eyes are fine, but the nose, I mean, I was waiting for heaven. Do something with the schnoz. Do something with the nose. Get rid of the nose, all right? I don't know how that's going to work out, but Scripture would seem to indicate that there will be some characteristics by which we will recognize Uh, others around us. The Bible certainly declares that when we arrive in heaven, uh, 1 John 3, 2, we're going to be like him, which is going to be an incredible thing, is it not? Because we're going to see him as he is. And just as our earthly bodies were the first uh, man, Adam, so our resurrected bodies are going to be just like uh, Christ. And so I believe that Scripture clearly shows us in in 1 Corinthians that, that Jesus was recognized in his glorified body, And I believe that if we're going to be like him, that we will also be recognized in our glorified bodies. I don't uh, totally understand how that's going to happen. I don't uh, understand since we're going to be perfect and we're going to be good. And you can look at most of us and very few of us are perfect. I don't know exactly how God works that all out. 
But I do believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to recognize each other. I believe that there's ample evidence in Scripture that would lead us to believe that. All right, here's a question which uh, some uh, have asked, and uh, I like this question because I I assume that a lot of you have thought about this uh, at good times and at bad times in your marriages. Will we be bound to each other in our earthly, will we be bound to each other in heaven as we were in our earthly marriages? In other words, if you're married now, when you get to heaven, do you have to spend eternity with that person, right? And I don't want to get into all the ramifications there. Some of you are going, I think I might be able to make it to the end of my life, but eternity, it's just not going to happen. Well, let me, let me tell you this. So remember in eternity, we're going to be like Jesus, right? Because we're going to see him as he is. So ladies, just, just think about him like Jesus, right? And you may think it's really tough right now, but when you get to heaven and he's like Jesus, if we were bound to each other for eternity, things would be better, all right? It's a question that, that many have thought of. The Bible does tell us, though, in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, that at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. That was Jesus' answer in response to a question concerning a woman who'd been married multiple times in her life. And the question was asked, whose is she going to be in heaven? (laughs) Good question, right? Good question to ask if you're a a polygamist or if you've been married uh, many times. Evidently, there will be no such thing as marriage in heaven. Now, this doesn't mean, uh, based on our last uh, uh, question, it doesn't mean that you won't recognize them. It doesn't mean that you'll no longer know them or have some kind of a relationship with them in heaven. It also uh, doesn't mean uh, that, that you couldn't have uh, an ongoing friendship uh, in eternity because you were husband and wife. But what it does seem to indicate, though, is that a husband and wife will no longer be married in heaven. Now, for some of you, especially some of you uh, 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 who've been married for a very long time and you actually like being married, that's awesome. That's great. I am so thankful when uh, I am around older people, older couples who actually seem like they still love each other. Isn't that encouraging? Uh, Those that have been married 30, 40, 50, in some cases 60 years and they actually still look like they like each other, that's awesome. And here's the thing. When I answer a question like this, for some of you that are in those situations, or even those of you that are newlyweds, or you've been married for 10 years, 15, 20 years, and you think, I really like this person. I made a great choice. It's a very sorrowful thing then to think about that you might not spend eternity. Well, you will spend eternity with them, but you won't spend eternity with them as uh, your spouse. Um, but I believe that most likely there will be no marriage in heaven simply because there will be no need for it, which is important to think about. When God established marriage, he did so for certain reasons. Uh, If you go back to the book of Genesis, first of all, you see that uh, he said what about Adam? He said it's not good for him to be alone. Guys, can can you confirm that with me? Can I get an amen? Can somebody testify? I know for me, I think if something happened to Diana... I don't know if I'm capable at age 46 of attracting any other woman if something were to happen to Diana, but I pray to Jesus up in heaven that if something happened to her, that somehow, some way, God would send along some woman because I really believe the truth of that verse. It is not good for a man to be alone. I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and then somewhat I say it very seriously. God said, Adam, I don't think it's going to be good for you to be alone, so I'm going to create this thing, and we're going to call her woman. And some have said, Adam sat back and he said, whoa, man, wow. 
And that's why God first created Eve, because it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, and he created a partner for him. Uh, He also said that he wanted them uh, to uh, procreate. He wanted them to fill the earth. He wanted there to be other human beings. However, in heaven, um, it won't be populated by procreation. Now, it does bring up some interesting questions, and we talked about this in our series in January, if you remember, about um, when we have our thousand-year millennial reign down here. We recognize that there will be some that will reject the Messiah during the millennial kingdom. Others will accept him. Uh, I've always uh, asked the question, and again, I'm giving you another sermon hang-up. I recognize that. But where will those children come from? Obviously, during the millennial kingdom, there will be some type of sexual relationship between men and women. There will be new babies that come on the earth, and some of them will grow up, and they will reject the Messiah during that thousand-year reign. But for all of eternity, beyond that thousand-year millennial kingdom, uh, there there would be no procreation, and heaven is populated with those who have trusted in Christ alone as our Savior. And so you see there's no need for marriage uh, in heaven. And I know for some of you that's sad. For others of you, you go, yes, if I can just persevere. I I, I would tell you, by the way, that if that's your attitude, and I don't want to get off on a tangent, but if that's your attitude about your spouse, I'd say don't hide that. Come to us. Let us help you. Let us direct you. Let us send you to somebody who can help you in your marriage. Marriage is intended to be incredible. And there are a lot of days when it is, right? Right? And there are some days when it just takes work. It does. It takes a lot of work. Um, But let us get you help with your marriage. Don't sit along thinking, man, if I can just make it to eternity, I'll be okay. All right? Don't do that. Uh, Let us get you help. I guarantee you there's not one couple that's here today that at some point hasn't struggled in their marriage. And if uh, if you say, ah, we really haven't, then come see me, please, this week. Because I've got so many couples I'd love for you to meet with, and I'd love for you to share with them your secret. And again, I don't say that sarcastically, even though it's a spiritual gift. I don't say that sarcastically. I say that because uh, it's a journey, and it's difficult, and it's hard. And if you're struggling right now, don't just try to deal with it in your home. Come to us. We'll help you. If we can't help you, we'll point you to somebody that can. Because God intends marriage to be incredible. And it can be. Even though two sinners are living together, it can be incredible. Number five. If we're eternal beings, why can't we remember before we were born? I'm reading this question going, all right, this is somebody that was bored during the sermon, and they're just kind of thinking of things, right? And then there was, underneath the question, A, B, C. A was, where was our spirit? B, does God create a soul for every new baby? And C, does our soul come to us through God or through our parents? Okay, and I really think I know who wrote this question. I really do, because I think I understand the, uh, uh, the handwriting. I, I, think I, I think I do. But I'm going to answer the question as if it's a serious question, because it is. It just took me about 20 hours this week to uh, think through it. So (laughs) thank you for that. All right, I could have been watching the Olympics, could have been doing other things, but no. I was trying to figure out uh, where does our spirit come from? Do we get it from God or from our parents? Thanks to you. So whoever you are, thank you. First, let me say this. Let me make sure that you understand that as human beings, we are not eternal in the sense of which God is eternal. Okay, did you hear what I said? We're not eternal in the sense of which God's eternal. In fact, let me give you two verses of Scripture. Uh, Psalm uh, 90 and verse 2, a verse that many of you are probably familiar with, says this, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. 
The fact that God is eternal means that he didn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end, okay? Now just let that sit in your mind and ponder that. That's what I love about in my finite mind trying to comprehend God because that blows my mind. Everything that I know about on this planet has a beginning and most everything that I know has an end, those good things and bad things. But God had no beginning and he never will have an end. He's always been here. That's unbelievable. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. We haven't always been, but here's the really cool thing. We haven't always been, but we always will be, which is a really cool thing. We're going to live someplace, right? The Bible is very clear about that. In fact, John chapter 3 and verse 16, which is a verse that many of us learn as children growing up. It's one of the first verses we learn. For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what kind of life? Eternal life. And so my friends who, who are annihilationists, who believe that, that we, just, we just go back to dust and it's, we're done with, God said in a very simple verse, we are eternal beings. We're going to live someplace for all of eternity. Now, in my research this week, and um, I was kind of preaching a little bit to Diana last night. I sometimes do that just to kind of warm her up a little bit and, and see if she rejects what I'm saying, because if she does, therefore you probably will. So I gave her a little bit of this last night. It didn't, it didn't go real well. I didn't, it didn't get very far. But so, so stick with me for a minute, okay, because you might learn something here in just a few moments that, that might really impress your friends this week, all right? When you're sitting at lunch, you don't have anything to talk about, this will be a good topic right here, all right? Especially if you're with somebody that you don't really want to spend a long time with at lunch, this would be really cool, all right? Bring up this subject, and they will have to get back to the office rather quickly, all right? There are two biblically, uh, evangelicals believe, two biblically plausible views on how the human soul is created. Uh, there is one view called traducianism, all right? I'm not going to spell that for you. Just sound it out, you know, phonetically, and you'll, you'll get it. Traducianism, traducianism is the theory that, the soul is, uh, that a soul is generated by the physical parents along with the physical body. So in other words, when a husband and a wife uh, conceive a child, when that child is conceived, that child is conceived not only physically and begins to grow in the womb of that mother, but not only is his physical body beginning to grow, but his soul is conceived uh, as well. Now, here are uh, four real quick points on why uh, there are some evangelicals that believe in traducianism. Uh, the support is as follows. In Genesis 2-7, God breathed the breath of life into Adam, causing Adam to become a living soul, Genesis 2-7 says. Uh, scripture nowhere, though, records God performing this action uh, again. Number two, Adam had a son in his own likeness, Genesis 5.3, and Adam's descendants seemed to be living souls without God breathing uh, into them, which would lead you to believe that, again, as, as these babies are conceived, that soul uh, comes then. Genesis 2, 2 to 3, seems to indicate that God ceased his creative work. And then lastly, Adam's sin affects all men, both physically and spiritually, and this makes sense if the body and soul both come from the parents. And they originate at the same time at conception. All right? That's traducianism. It's great, isn't it? It's awesome. It's good. It's good to know. You know, stick that in your, in your file cabinet there and pull that one up sometime. You'll really impress somebody that you know that. Creationism, however, is the view that God creates a new soul when a human being is conceived. 
I have to tell you, I would land more on this side of things. Creationism uh, was held by many early church fathers and has also obviously a lot of scriptural support. Uh, First of all, scripture differentiates the origin of the soul from the origin of the body. Uh, In Ecclesiastes 12 and Isaiah uh, 42, it would seem as if those are two uh, distinct uh, uh, things. Uh, the weakness of creationism with regards to the soul is that, it is, is that it has God continually creating new human souls, while Genesis chapter 2 that I referred to before, verses 2 and 3, indicates that God ceased creating. And also, since uh, the entire human existence, body, soul, and spirit, are infected by sin, and God creates a new soul for every human being, how is that soul then uh, infected with sin? That kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? If God gives it to us, then how does the soul get sin? We understand how we get it if, if, if it's through conception, we understand. A third view, uh, but one that lacks biblical support, and I think it's really important to, uh, uh, to at least mention this morning, because I think it's so easy for how many of us can read um, modern literature and, and, and books that come out and, and things that are on the top of the New York, uh, New York Times bestseller list, and we think, well, i got to read that. And as Christians, again, we should be discerning based on biblical principle, but sometimes we don't. And, and here's a third view. It lacks biblical support. It's the concept that God created all human souls at the same time, and then he simply attaches a soul to a human being at the moment of conception. In fact, this view kind of looks at it as if God created this... Uh, quote-unquote, warehouse of souls, where God uh, stores these souls that are waiting uh, human bodies to be attached to them. Um, It it has no biblical support whatsoever, and I I think really is probably more associated with uh, the New Age movement or those that have the mindset of reincarnation, okay? And so I would not give any credence to that at all. So whether or not the view of traducianism or the creationist view is correct, both agree that the soul does not exist prior to conception, and that seems to be the clear uh, teaching of the Bible. And so whether God creates a new uh, human soul at that particular uh, moment of conception or whether God designs them and he joins them up together, um, God's ultimately responsible for creation, right? He's ultimately responsible for how all that, all that uh, comes uh, together. And um, after about 20 hours of studying, that's the conclusion that I've come to. So, so, so there, whoever asked me that question. Right? No, it's a good question and fascinating to think about uh, some of those things. And those are the best answers I can give you based on, what we, based on what we see in Scripture. All right, last question for today. Where were Old Testament saints like Abraham after they died? with God or in some other place. We know things radically change with Christ's resurrection, so they wanted, so this actually came from some junior high girls, they wanted to know about the afterlife before Christ dying and rising from the dead. I love how the person that submitted this question wrote the end of the question. They put, I'm fuzzy on that. (laughs) Which basically means I don't quite understand that, all right? That's a great question, though. And I've had that question come up uh, uh, a myriad of times in talking with people what happened to Old Testament saints. Where did they go to? Here's what you need to understand about the Old Testament and teaching about heaven. Bible scholars, in fact, some, depending on how arrogant they are, would would not say this. But since I am uh, not a Bible scholar, um, I have no problem telling you this, that the Old Testament really is somewhat vague in its teaching about heaven. Um, we see the use of the term Sheol uh, very often. Uh, 
And it incorporates, especially in the Old Testament, it incorporates both negative and positive elements of life uh, after death. And just to tell you in a little bit of studying that I did uh, this week, there is a view uh, that, that basically says that uh, everybody went to Sheol, there was a good place uh, in Sheol, and there was a bad place, and it was kind of like a, a holding tank. There is a view out there uh, that's held by some very esteemed evangelicals, okay? Uh, more esteemed than I am, because I don't even think I'm esteemed, okay? So I, I'm just telling you, being fair and answering the question, that, that there are some that hold uh, to that view. Um, certainly, there are more clear references in heaven to the New Testament, Right? In fact, I would recommend to you again um, the book um, by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. Uh, I know some of you uh, started reading that in January, and some of you are on chapter 4 now. That's really awesome. That's, that's great. It's about 500 pages long. I get it. All right? It's hard. Um, but I would recommend to you that book because it is a great, a great work that's done on heaven and not just a speculative work, but based on the truth of Scripture and a lot, of, a lot of those principles related to heaven in Randy Alcorn's book come out of the New Testament. But the Old Testament, I believe, also includes some very useful passages as well. Some of David's Psalms and parts of the book of Isaiah uh, call attention to the reality of this place that we know of as heaven. And so the question is, where do the Old Testament people go uh, prior to waiting uh, for uh, a new place, or did they go to heaven? R.C. Sproul, and I'm going to recommend his book to you uh, next week while I think uh, my esteemed uh, scholarly friend is, uh, is, is wrong on some issues, my personal belief with regards to some issues in doctrine, secondary doctrine. He's got some really incredible works, and one of them that, he's, that he did several years ago is basically answers to common questions that we have as Christians. And that's a really good book, and I'll recommend that to you next week and give you the name of that and everything. But R.C. Sproul made this statement, and I do tend to agree with him. He, he said this, I'm inclined to think that Old Testament saints had immediate access to paradise because heaven itself is called the bosom of Abraham in the New Testament. That's a really interesting point. Uh, that's not likely a descriptive term for heaven, he went on to say, if it's someplace from which Abraham was absent. So in other words, Abraham must have been there, or we wouldn't have called it, a scripture wouldn't have called it the bosom of, of, of Abraham. Here's what's very, very important for you to understand along with this question. Because for many, and again, depending on how much you've studied your Bible and how much you understand your Bible, the question comes up, how did people in the New Testament even end up in heaven, right? That was before the cross, that was before Jesus died on the cross. How do they even end up any place? Uh, since salvation comes to us on the merits of the merits of Christ, right? Nothing else, not your baptism, it's not what family you were born into, it's not anything other than the merits of Christ. In the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, salvation comes by faith and by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through what? Through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, okay? The only difference in the Old Testament uh, faith was that there was a future promise that had not yet been fulfilled, right? They knew that eventually there was a Messiah, there was a Redeemer that would come, and he would save them from their sins. They knew that promise was, was out there. The people believed, and when they believed, they were justified and counted worthy to be in the presence of God. If you were to go, in fact, to the book of Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, Genesis 15, 6, Romans 4 referring to, says that Abraham believed God, and that it was counted to him as righteousness. 
He believed that God would provide a Messiah. He accepted that by faith. And today, what do we do? We look backward, right? They were looking forward. We look backward now at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have such an advantage, don't we? We have an historical record that says that there was a Jesus, that he died, that he shed innocent blood on a cross for us. That's an incredible advantage that we have in our day. But we're looking backwards at the sacrifice that was made on the cross for our sin. And I don't see anything that would prevent God from opening the gates of heaven prior to the cross, even though he does so in light of the cross. Does that make sense to you? I hope so. It's an important thing, I think, to, uh, to understand and to recognize how Old Testament people came into a relationship with God and where they went when they died. I don't see anything in Scripture that would prevent us from coming to the conclusion that they were with Jesus. Now, today, we certainly know, and there's, there's, there's no room for, uh, for disagreement, I don't think. When a believer dies, he's present with the Lord. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Um, that tells us that when, when we're absent from the body, where are we? We're present with the Lord. Isn't that going to be awesome? That gives me a good reason to actually want to leave today. All right? Short of Discover Northwest being tonight and banana pudding being on the agenda, there would be a good reason to leave, right? Because if I'm absent from this body, if I die, I don't just cease to exist. I go to spend all of eternity with Jesus in a place that he's preparing for me. And that's an incredible, an incredible thing. Now, remember what we said before, that we are eternal beings in the sense that we will spend eternity someplace. We'll either spend it in eternity with heaven, in heaven, or when an unbeliever dies, he follows the Old Testament unbelievers to a place that's called Hades. And Scripture is very clear that at the final judgment, Hades will be emptied before the great white throne, that judgment in which... Uh, uh, God judges whether a name has been written in the Lamb's book of life because we're trusting in Christ alone as our Savior. And it's at that point that the occupants of Hades will be judged prior to being thrown in the lake of fire. We see that in Revelation chapter 20. And that is, quite frankly, a good place to end this morning because that's why we do what we do here. That's why we've been left on this planet. Because ultimately, these people that you're doing life with here in this place and in your workplace tomorrow and middle school, high school students in your schools and in your neighborhoods and your family, those are all people that are eternal. They're going to spend all of eternity someplace. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we've been left here on this planet with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and they've come short of the glory of God. They've missed the mark. There's a gap between God and the relationship that he desires to have with his creation. There's a debt that has to be paid. And the good news of the gospel, which we have to share with with a world that's so desperately seeking truth, is that Jesus made that way. That's the cross. He paid a debt that he didn't owe so that we could have a debt that we owed be marked paid in full, complete, assuring us of an eternity not apart from God, but with God for all of eternity in heaven. And I'm looking forward to that. I'll tell you what, if I was not convinced in the reality of heaven, if I just thought that I just ceased to exist, I told somebody just this week who I was talking with about these things, boy, would I have a good time. 
wouldn't you? I mean, I'd just go out, I'd make lots of money, I'd spend it, I'd do whatever I could just to simply amuse myself. Because after all, we eat, drink, and be merry, we see it in the Gospels, right? Because tomorrow we die and we just cease to exist. But because of the reality of heaven, because there's a God who created us, who loved us so much that he wanted to have a relationship with us, and then he said, not only am I going to have a relationship with you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am there you might be also. That's why we do what we do. That's why we share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I trust you not only live that, but you share it because that's good news. That's awesome news for a world that's so desperately seeking truth and meaning to why they're here and why they exist. They were created to have a relationship with the God of the universe and by having that relationship, bring glory to him. I trust we're living our lives that way. Let's pray.